Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. And I suspect that sometime in your life, you've driven by or gone in or dropped off goods or purchased goods at a Goodwill store. There are over 155 independent Goodwill organizations in the United States alone. But what we may not think about with Goodwill is the people that they're training behind the scenes, the men and women they're trying to help. Goodwill has served about 2 million people, which range from a, quote, lighter touch service to extensive training, career navigation, and job placement. Today on the broadcast, I'm humbled to have Steve Preston, who is the CEO of Goodwill Industries. Uh, Thanks for joining the podcast, Steve. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be with you today. Reading your CV or Vita or Personalia would take most of the program, but let me just give folks a few of the highlights. Steve is one accomplished individual. He's uh, worked at the uh, United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, a.k.a. HUD. He is the director of the Small Business Administration, SBA. Both of these organizations are unwieldy government bureaucracies, and for him to step into those roles is no small task. We're going to talk some about that in the broadcast today. He's also worked as CEO with private corporations, including Oak Leaf Global Holdings and Livingston International as well. Both his time at HUD and his time at SBA were in some pretty high crises modes, but we're going to talk about that in more detail. He graduated with highest distinction from Northwestern University. He has an MBA from the University of Chicago. He served on many boards and lots of different capacities. I'm going to leave it there. He and Molly live outside the Washington, D.C. area. Five kids. Any grandkids? Oh, you're hitting my pain point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, we're about the same age. I'm thinking, well, you got to have some grands, right? Well, I got five kids in their 20s, and only the baby is even dating right now. Oh, okay. But, well, uh, it'll happen. It'll yeah, happen. We have two that just finished grad school and another one in grad school, so they're kind of going through the pipeline. Well, thanks again for jumping on the program. Thanks to Tommy Lee, our mutual friend who connected us. As part of the In Context format. Steve, what we do is we talk to people about how they live out their faith in the context of their job, profession, their world. Let's jump right into that. In the private sector with Lehman Brothers and other organizations, how do you, service master, how do you navigate being a Christian, or let's just say for our audience, a religious person in these rather large organizations that aren't always real friendly to people of faith? Big question and a great question. I think, first of all, a lot of people will say, how do I integrate my faith with my work? Or they'll, you know, kind of think about these things. And as a person, I celebrated my 50th year as a Christian last month. Wow. So that was a a great sort of memorable time for me to think back on those years. And I really think as a person of faith, you start from the point that this is who I am. This is what's at the core of me. You know, the Bible speaks frequently about, you know, living in Christ or in Christ being a new creation. And it's really sort of the state of who we are with the spirit living through us. So every decision, every encounter, every time we speak or engage with somebody, that should be a reflection of who we are as believers in Christ. You know, I'm not the perfect example of that by any means, but what I have found over the years, especially in really, really messy leadership positions and crises, is that in every one of those places, there is just incredible incredible instruction and encouragement and vision in the scriptures 
for how we lead into each one of those places. Mm. It's really allowing our faith to be that outgrowth of who we are in all of those places, in how we speak, in our engagements, in our integrity. I think as a leader, my own talk track about why we're making the decisions we do and where we're going needs to be very much infused with who I am as a person of faith. And it's not unusual at all for me to be speaking to a large group and say something like, you need to know I come to this as a person of faith. And let me tell you how my faith instructs me in this place. I know you may not share that faith, but I'm hopeful that there's lessons for all of us in this. So I try to think about ways that I can be constructive and engaging when I actually do become much more overt about about my faith in those places. I have a friend that was very high up in a corporate world, a very big corporation, and uh, she was a senior uh, counsel. And during the gender discussions and the LGBTQ discussions and HR fights, she had a tremulous role on the one hand, representing the company and the HR policies, on the other, trying to look at these are individuals and people's lives you're talking about, but being very different than the way she had a worldview of what it meant to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had to encounter similar kinds of things, right? Yes, I certainly encountered similar kinds of things. Some of the transgender issues have been less kind of central to my situation. I think certainly... When you get into issues of rights for people who may have lifestyles that differ from Christian teaching, you know, my view is, you know, Christ taught us to love everybody, care about them deeply. I believe firmly that people should have, you know, the ability to thrive in the workplace and to take care of themselves and their family. I also believe that our federal government and our society needs to leave room for people who have fundamentally different views in life and who are led by their conscience to do fundamentally different things. Where we are today, I think, in this cultural divide is that you're either all in and pushing hard on one side or all in and pushing on the other side. And it's very difficult for us to come together and say, I understand that person's lifestyle is not something that I may not embrace. I recognize their freedom to live that, but I also want to have the right to lead my life in a way that I believe Mm -hmm. is aligned with my conscience. That becomes very challenging when, you know, I'm on the board of Wheaton College. becomes very challenging if you're a religious organization or somebody that has a stated belief when these things begin to clash. I believe as Christians, we can move forward in love, in acceptance in many ways, and still be able to say, I love you and I care about you, even though I don't embrace all of your decisions, I don't embrace your lifestyle, but I can care about you in many, many ways that are very important. Well, and it's, you know, I was talking to a guest recently about indoctrination versus education or critical thinking. We've changed so much, especially in the government and bureaucracies. When when you and I were younger, it was called the bureaucracy. Now it's called the deep state. <laughs> and there's these different nuances, but the challenge becomes as a Christian, I don't want to go in there and be sharp elbowed and yelling and screaming and beating people over the head with the Bible, I always tell people, you know, state your convictions in a kind way and smile, you know, say, hey, look, I'm not here to pick a fight. But the challenge, I think, for more employees than not is you have to not only accept, you have to endorse and celebrate 
or you're in trouble. And it seems to have, I mean, we talk about the woke culture, but we're kind of off in the weeds. Let's come back to Steve Preston and some of the challenges. 2006, you leave a very successful career in the private sector to go work for the Small Business Association Disaster Assistant Program of Hurricane Katrina. And I, I couldn't resist the pejorative comment, which was more of a disaster, Katrina or the SBA? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, was, it was tough. So I was the, you know, I came in to lead the SBA, and the biggest issue they had at that point was their disaster loan program. Okay, so before we get there, why did you leave the corporate world where I'm sure you had a, a great lifestyle, and now you're going to take on the government? Whew. Well, I will tell you, you're right. I <laughs> Everything was going great. Yeah, great job, great community, five children in grade school, and things were, were pretty great. But I think I, like a lot of people, had watched news coverage in the Gulf and had seen the horrific circumstances that people had and mm. wondered why we couldn't do more as a society and as a government and as businesses to meet the needs of those people. And I sort of many times thought, is there just, I wish I could just do something. Mm. And I got a call to look at a role in the federal government. I was offered a different role. It was a very nice role, really interesting, impactful, not terribly visible. And right before they were about to announce me in the role, they said, we have a something we consider to be a higher calling. It's going to be very rough and tumble. You don't need to do it. But it's very important to the president. And, it's very, and, and as I said before, it was a very higher calling. My view in life is... You know, as Christians, we live lives of calling. That's who we are. That's that instruction is everywhere. Right. And so I kind of went through this process of saying, you know, what am I getting into? Well, it was tough. One hundred and sixty thousand people were in line to get federal loans and they couldn't get them because the whole machinery of extending those loans had collapsed. And those hundred and sixty people were looking to get their lives back. And it was, you know, many months after the storm. SBA had the lowest morale of any agency in the federal government. That part of the organization was in disarray. The legislators were calling for my predecessor's resignation. The press was all over the agency. I'd been a private person in the private sector, and I looked at this, and when they said, would you consider doing this, I have to tell you, it was like it was a real, uh, you know, just like, oh, my goodness, how can I do this? But I kind of went through this process and said, like, well, in 30 years, when I look back on my life, who do I want to have been? Was I the person who, you know, would go in and answer the call and, and try to use the skills and the experiences that God had given me in a situation that met the needs of people? Or do I want to play it safe? It ended up not really being a tough decision. It may be a tough realization, but it wasn't a tough. There was really no decision at the end because mm-hmm. I felt like God had taken me to this place of, like, this is it. This is the impact. And, you know, I'm calling you to do this. It's remarkable. And you lived in the D.C. area for 12 years, and I watched men and women in uniform and men and women in the federal government. And I thought it's a different cut of cloth, but it's not because, as you said, you are you articulated it well. Was there a shell shock when you walked in? I mean, you have 167,000 people trying to get loans. What was the biggest shell shock? So, you know, what? I'm not a shell-shocked person. You know, I've been hit with a lot of crises. So I, I usually, you know, okay. when I'm hit with shell shock, I usually kind of mentally jump into action. I, it, it, it kind of, it, there's more of a kick-in mode than a pull-back mode, especially if I'm in charge. So I work very hard, very quickly to get my head around things. Now, there was a, how does this place work? 
And, you know, many times I would go to my staff and say, well, we want to accomplish X, Y, and Z. How do we do this? And then I'd get a description of regulatory restrictions or legislative issues or different agencies that had to approve something. And (laughs) many times I said, that cannot possibly be true. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't make any sense, right? But what you find is in the federal government, there are a lot of sort of historical layers of stuff that have built up that may not be even completely relevant anymore, but they're sort of vestiges of a system and of other things that really can slow you down. So I had to be very enterprising with my team. I had a terrific team. I was able to bring in some very good people. And there were some very good people at the SBA already. And so, you know, we worked through all of those things to be able to move. And we actually were able to move extremely quickly. We came in, I think, in July. We just looked very intensively to understand the issues through looking at operational data, customer data, technology issues, going out into the field and listening to people who were were going through the difficulties and what their customer experience was. And we pulled together and we put in place an action plan. And within a few months, we had $6 billion in people's hands. And we had cleared out most of the issue. The biggest issue I had in that process was my team was demoralized. You know, these are the people who've been working on this massive storm response for months and months and months. And the press was all over them and Congress was all over them. You know, they just they were on their heels and they didn't have a pathway to figure out how to fix it. And so what I did was I said, gosh, I've got to figure out how to pull the team over the line. So I sent a cameraman down to the Gulf. And I said, I just want you to interview people who are trying to get their loans and I want to hear their stories. So I called sort of a, you know, a big, a big all hands meeting with the loan processing people and, you know, people from the headquarters. First of all, they never believed that the head of the agency would show up for something like that. So my being fully present was really important. And I said, look, before we kick off the work to fix the problem, I want us all to listen to the people we serve. So I played this video of just people telling stories and why they needed the money. And it was just, when the lights came on, it was just like you could hear a pin drop, right? And I said, look, this is why we are all here. All of the internal fighting needs to go away. All of the, you know, feeling downtrodden based on what we're hearing on the outside, that all needs to go away. And everybody in this room gets a free pass on history. That's behind us. But going forward, those are the people we serve. People just rose to the occasion like you can. And the same people that were sort of, quote unquote, the problem were the ones that designed and implemented the solution and made it interesting. Interesting. I think they were just heroic. You know, that's a stroke of genius. I'm thinking of my failures over (laughs) the past 43 years in leadership. And I often wonder how would I do it differently. But one of the challenges for me was always you had these obstructionists and there were people that one place I worked, every sentence began with, well, historically, Dr. Easley. And it was this, you know, this, okay, what you're telling me is you don't want to do anything differently. And then, you know, we're going to be in the same circle. You had to move some people, some deck chairs, you know, on and off the bus. But it sounds like you, you gather them around a common objective. Like, here's the issue we're after. I mean, that's just genius, Steve. So did you have to move some folks off the bus? We had to move some folks off the bus, but we had to do, there was a different strategy that, that was more impactful. And that was moving people onto the bus who had very specific skills around process redesign, around project implementation. And a lot of the people 
were very good in their lanes, but very few had been through a major organizational transformation. And let me interrupt, especially yeah. in the government. For sure. I mean, it's one thing in the private sector to, you know, do a skunk work or something, but it's unprecedented in the government. I can't tell you if it was unprecedented, but it was a whole new thing for this team, right? And so I established a program management office. I brought in data collection capabilities so we could we could track metrics. I was in the meetings asking the questions with other leaders. They saw my commitment and they didn't feel like they were left on their own. It wasn't sort of like, we got to fix this. You guys go do it. It was like, to mm. fix this, it's going to require these skills, these disciplines. We need every one of you to bring your all in, but we're going to give you support to get there. I think that was really the power of punch is bringing sort of best of breed and historical knowledge into the same room. Well, if that wasn't enough, two years later, President George W. Bush puts you over HUD. So I would say frying pan into the fire. <laughs> so, I'll tell you a story about that. So the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development prior to me had, had left in April and the housing crisis was sort of mushrooming. I got a call from the White House to say, we'd like to talk to you about this role. The process moved extremely quickly just because of the urgency, you know, of needing a housing secretary in a housing crisis. The president was interviewing me in the Oval Office. He said, why would you want to do this job? <laughs> and I started off by saying, well, you know, sir, a lot of people thought I was crazy when I took the SBA job. And he said, you were. <laughs> he's, he's got a terrific sense of humor. Yes, he And does. I said, you know, but like, like, I think this is why we're here, right? I mean, like, what more could you ask for? than to be in a situation where you've developed certain skills and capabilities and it matters in this place. Like to me, what what a great opportunity for us, right? Even though it's hard. And interestingly, the SBA job had prepared me further for HUD because when I came to SBA was understanding the the federal machinery. I didn't understand media. I hadn't, you know, and so those two years ended up being an additional educational experience for me to be able to move into the HUD role, which certainly, you know, stepped up the temperature even further. Goodness gracious. So after a dose of government programs, (laughs) you move over to Goodwill, which in a way is, you would think it would be almost the other way around. It's like, okay, if I can fix Goodwill, I can fix anything. So now you come into Goodwill. Talk about why. I mean, I think America's understanding of Goodwill, as I said, is a store. They drop things off where kids go buy things, but they don't understand that's a small you know, part of the whole, can you say, ministry of goodwill? Yeah. So after the federal government, my first stop was running a couple of companies. So when I went back, actually for a period of time, went back to the private sector. And really to sanity. Thought, well, and also, <laughs> honestly, I needed to kind of get my kids back to yeah. normalcy because that whole swirl for them was sort of overpowering. So we got... Most of our kids through high school, and then I went to Goodwill. And Goodwill was a very intentional pathway for me. When I was a single guy as a banker living in New York, I spent my weekends with kids in the inner city, tutoring them, mentoring them. I was on a board of an organization that supported kids in a few different neighborhoods. And I sort of saw what their lives were like, and we worked very hard with those kids to help them move out of their circumstances. Well, fast forward 15 years, I'm running HUD, and HUD's really the primary federal agency that's focused on poverty issues. And I felt like I could see what happened to those kids who didn't make it out. 
Wow. Right. You know, in perpetual poverty, maybe homeless, living in public housing. Earlier in my life, I just wanted to be with those kids and help them out. And later when I saw what happened, I said, man, we have so many adults who have so much life ahead of them. And if they can get the right support to get out of those circumstances, they don't need public housing. They don't need mm. welfare. They don't need these things. They can take care of themselves. They can be self-sustainable if we can get them through that. So I actually wrote a personal mission statement for myself to lead a company that supported people in those circumstances to be able wow. to self-sustainability. And 18 months after I wrote that personal mission statement, I got a call from a recruiter on the Goodwill job. And I didn't even know what Goodwill did. I had the same impression, you know, right. it's a, and I literally said, I said, I don't want that job. I, like, I don't know anything about retail. And I hung up the phone and about a week and a half later, the partner called me up and I said, well, we've been talking to you. We think this is really what you want to do. And when I heard about the mission, I mean, we're the largest provider of workforce development services in the continent for in the nonprofit world. And it's been our mission for 120 yeah. years. This is what our founder did. Our founder helped people that were very poor get jobs in the stores, get job skills, and be able to move on in our lives. Our mission has evolved to where we have 2 million people that we help outside of the store. So those aren't our employees. Those are people that come into job centers or get help. But then we also have 130,000 employees. And many of those employees are people that have come out of incarceration, yeah. have disabilities, have very low education levels. And they come into us and we train them and develop them. And often they move up in our organization, but often they move out to jobs outside of our organization. Yeah, when I, I went to college in a small Texas university, Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas, and they had a, a pretty big Goodwill Center there. And the well as a sheltered workshop. Yeah. Part of my education was spending some time there. And I was blown away as a college kid watching, in this particular case, this one facility, most of the kids were Downs kids. The kind level of patience and expertise that these men and women had who taught these kids these certain skills. I mean, talk about, you know, a pin drop. I mean, eye watering the whole thing because you see the, I mean, yeah. they're precious people. And they need someone beside mom and dad to say, no, this is how you put this together. And yeah. then to watch the ownership of some of these kids. I'll never forget this one was a, a, a car detailing business. And they had set this thing up. It was like a, a shotgun. And each kid had a responsibility. Now, it was you know high ratio of supervisor over employee. It was very expensive in those days, like 50 bucks to have your car detailed. And they would do so many a day. And you signed up three and four weeks ahead of time, even if it was going to rain or it didn't matter. Yeah. And the community was so behind this effort. And again, that was a big goodwill effort there in Nacogdoches. But it blew me away. Back to your point, I had no idea other than a place to drop off things or to walk through and buy some used clothes or used appliance of some kind. Yeah. So well, Specifically for the disability community. Yeah. Uh, Last year, we supported about 190,000 people with disabilities through our various programs. And what I've learned is how great the emotional burden is on those people. People understand that they're different. People understand that they're treated differently. People understand that they have limitations. And that is a huge burden that they bear as yes. well. 
you know, we talk about wanting to make sure that they're self-sustainable and support their families, et cetera, et cetera, all of which is valid. But the human impact from knowing that you contribute and that you're part of a team and that you bring something valuable to bear is enormous. And it's just so wonderful to see in action. Yeah. yeah. We've become close friends with Johnny and uh, Erickson Tata and Ken over the years. And, and to watch that ministry up close and personal and the, the, the one of the things that, you know, I'm slow to learn, the caretaker and the family impact when you have a person with disabilities is often forgotten. Almost as much effort and time required to help them, right? Understand your son, your daughter, this is how they're gonna live. We can help them, you know, in this lane, but you also have to help the family understand, you know, my son or daughter is never gonna have a six-figure income. They're never gonna be completely self-sufficient. They will have some limitations, I presume, even in, in goodwill system. Yeah, well, of course, there's a big spectrum of capabilities there. And sometimes, many times, we see people completely bust through barriers to a place that's you know, much more than you would have ever thought. And in other cases, you do have to make those tough realizations and, and plan accordingly and support people accordingly. Talk a little bit about you come to lead Goodwill and then the pandemic hits. Yes, it did. <laughs> it <definitely laughs> okay. Well, if you look at our network, we have 3,300 stores, about 130,000 employees across Goodwill. So we had all of the same issues that retailers across the world had with closures, massive financial impacts, health issues when you reopen, when you rehire. However, you mentioned you know, in your introduction, Goodwill is not one organization. Goodwill is 155 independent local organizations across North America that have their own boards, they own their own assets, and they have their own, you know, financials. And those organizations are different sizes, different financial conditions, and different markets. So I lead the central organization that supports that network. And so we had to support organizations of varying sizes, capabilities, and sophistications get through this together. Many of the themes were consistent, but we had to support them in unique ways. It was a massive triage process, but it was also, you know, really wonderful in some ways because that network of 155 organizations came together, sharing best practices, sharing ideas with each other, we focused on creating tremendous resources and brought in pro bono advisors and all sorts of other support to help them get through it. That was really the store network in general. At the same time, we saw massive layoffs out there, and we had to figure out how to help people in the community in unique ways based on our ability to train and develop, based on our ability to run job fairs, and also based on our ability to help communities just because we have this big network. So locally, we were doing all sorts of things to support other charities. We had drive-in job fairs <laughs> where you could come up in your car and meet companies and have interviews in, in a you know wow. distanced way. We had we significantly expanded online consultation for people and online learning for people, helped them a lot more with online job hunting tools. We had a big agreement with Indeed.com. They were a terrific partner for us. So we had to be very creative in thinking about how to deliver services, job services to people when we couldn't be with them physically. I can't imagine. I mean, just in Tennessee, of course, the, the mask mandate and the vaccine mandate, could Goodwill have a blanket? Everybody has to be vaccinated? No, no. And 
We are not able to do that because every one of those 155 organizations has the the independent ability to advance their own policies, and they fall under different state and municipal mandates. So the local Goodwills did what they thought was best based on their circumstances, what they were seeing in terms of infection rates in their communities and based Mm -hmm. on local guidelines. Now, what we did is we did a tremendous amount of sharing of best practices a tremendous amount of collaboration across the network so people could see what other people were doing, sharing with people any federally available information or other kind of medical guidance that they could get. It's almost like 9-11 will never be quite the same. You know, it, it changed. We talk about the screen generation, those who've never been to an airport and not gone through TSA. You know, <laughs> it just it's, you know, it's, and now after the pandemic, it's like, everything's changed. I still remember when the grocery stores just took the plexiglass down not long ago. Talk about the most ineffective procedures, but you know, we act out of fear. When you are at the helm of this, I mean, I guess I'm almost afraid to ask where you're going next because there'll be some crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Are you the X factor, Steve? (laughs) I, 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 I have, I have, that, that comment has followed me more than once. But in fact, when I was publicly announced as the HUD nominee, <laughs> one of the commentators made some joke about me being the master of disaster. And right after that, you know those little like those little ticker, <laughs> those little yeah, Preston, master of disaster. disaster. Right? <laughs> I'm like, you know. Come on, I just I just want something kind of normal. You're trying to help. Yeah, you're trying to help. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, it, it has definitely followed me. It definitely well, followed. well, talk in broad terms, Steve, about, you know, again, a lot of people, friends of ours, are in, uh, whether it's government or bureaucratic or, you know, if you want to call it deep state, or they're in a corporation where they, they feel like they're on pins and needles about their faith. Yeah. And you seem to have navigated this with courage and with some joy to talk about who you are as a believer in Christ and how do you encourage people that, you know, I have friends, a FedEx pilot, you know, he's got some unique challenges, uh, friends that are doctors that have some very complicated challenges being a Christian. What do you tell them? What I would tell them is, first of all, be ready to be attacked and know that it's coming and be prepared for that. Throughout the scriptures, we're told that we're going to come under attack for our faith. And we know that. And we've lived... I think Christians in the United States have lived in an incredibly privileged environment for a couple of centuries. And when you look at the rest of the world, and when you look at history, this is not the normal thing. So I think be ready for it and understand that when you are attacked, what do you bring back to people? And, And how do you listen? And how do you enter those places with humility? Second Timothy says, you know, God didn't give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self control. Now, that's a pretty interesting trio, right? Power, but love and self-control. And I think that's a mixture to understand because we, we, we go in the strength of our faith. We go in the power of our convictions and we go in love. And when we get hit with these things, there's a degree of, of self-control that we have to exhibit. Now, when I got nominated for HUD, the Senate will send a bunch of questions that you have to answer. And yeah. one of the things was a thinly veiled attack to say, we understand you're leading Bible studies. And the implication was this is sort of a quid pro quo for being part of my leadership team. And are you breaching federal rules? And so that was right in the confirmation process. Now, a very savvy member of my ledge staff went back and looked in history and said, by the way, Bill Clinton signed an executive order that encouraged people to practice their faith in the federal workplace. (laughs) So we sent that in and that went away. But I think it's important to understand that. 
The other thing is I think we have an ability to speak to issues of faith in a much richer, holistic way. You know, you mentioned the word woke. You made kind of a a reference to, you didn't say it, but I was thinking about a reference to critical race theory. It's very easy for me to say, I don't necessarily buy into critical race theory, but I care deeply about the life challenges that people of color have had in our communities. I firmly believe that when you look at our cities and when you look at our culture and our communities across the country, much of what we are dealing with are the vestiges of slavery and the vestiges of redlining. And irrespective of what people want to call it, those people are living in very difficult situations and we have to care deeply about them, about their plight, about their families and about their future. And I care about that human being because I see the dignity of God in them. I think that's who we have to be. It's a richer picture than, you know, CRT or, you know, some other thing. And it's about our love for people. And it's about our care for people, for people in poverty or people that are oppressed or people that don't have a voice. And I think the biggest problem we have on that particular issue, and I know I'm going down a tangent, is so few people are coming to this with humility and looking at it and say, let's really talk about what the issues are. Because for me, I care about the person who comes into a goodwill who needs a job and doesn't have a pathway to get there. And I care about helping them move beyond their past to a fundamentally different future. And I want to love them in that way. That is a huge story for Christians. And Christians have always been the ones Mm-hmm. that have gone out into the most difficult places and dealt with the most difficult yeah. problems. And, you know, we were talking about Katrina. What we didn't talk about is the thousands of pickup trucks that came from churches across the country with people who knew how to fix houses and, and didn't tell anybody and just yep. showed up and took time off of work. That's who we are. Yeah. And so when it comes to sharing our faith or leading in faith, I always encourage people to think of those places as a way to bring forward our messages in a way that's sort of life-giving and caring, but also, you know, is aligned with the integrity or the fidelity that we all have to have to our faith. Hey, you mentioned the pickup trucks. We moved to Tennessee in uh, 2009. They had what they called the thousand-year flood. It was kind of obscure, but other things. Tennessee was hit with tornadoes and flooding and uh, for a while there, but Franklin, Tennessee was devastated with, they called it the four-foot line. Houses were four feet underwater. There was the comparison to Katrina mm-hmm. and government assistance. And in Tennessee, the volunteer state, they call it the four-foot line. People went in with utility knives, and they cut sheetrock at four feet. Neighbors were helping neighbors, pulled the insulation out, pulled the flooring up. And companies, the waste companies, put, without being asked, put the big dumpsters on every other street they had places to pile stuff. As things got better, Lowe's and Home Depot started delivering flats of plywood and sheetrock without cost. And they said, we'll figure out the billing later. They had kids that were painting uh, on plywood. We don't need no government assistance around here. And they had guys with their rifles. You know, There was no looting. Things were cleaned up on time and schedule. And we were new to the state. And a friend of mine who born here said, this is the volunteer state in action. Yeah. And back to your point, and, and a lot of people are, you know, good Christian Southerners, if you will. But point being, that's never reported. You're never going to read about that in the Times or the Journal or hear it on mainstream media. But there was no government assistance. All these homeowners help one another. 
Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, I mean, we had kids from our church that took time off from work to go pull that sheetrock and then insulation and put it in those dumpsters without yeah. being asked. Yeah. It was yeah. just remarkable. So anyway. That's who we need to be. Right? Yeah. That is a great story about people coming together and specifically people of faith coming together to support. support. As opposed to calling the government and saying, I need a loan to fix my house. Yeah. And yeah. not that there isn't a place for that, but lastly, as a leader, you have a unique megaphone, literal and metaphorical, to lead in that capacity. What about the people that are under a leader, Steve, who aren't necessarily like you in that regard? I mean, because many of the people we know in these large organizations, as well as government, I don't want to go so far as to say they're evil, but they're certainly not in league with humility and kindness and thinking about the the ROI, if you will. This is the person we're trying to help. It's about the job. It's about their rights. It's about their 13 federal holidays and their four vacation and their pension. They really don't have that in mind. So how do I work for that man or woman? I think there's a couple of things. First of all, you know, I've used this word a couple of times. I think especially if you're working with somebody like that, you need to go into those places with humility. We're also sort of instructed to be, you know, as wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves, right? So, so you gotta be, you gotta be wise and you have to know what you're up against and you can't pretend that it's anything different than it is. But you also have to understand that the person you're dealing with is a human being with, and obviously if they're like that, somebody who's got all sorts of challenges and whatever. I always encourage people, especially more junior people that are kind of, pushing a message up, to go in with humility, to share concerns in a way that's not threatening, that is not sort of an affront to the person, but helps them understand your viewpoint. It won't always work. There's something to be said about going in and opening a person up to say, I really want to think through what's happening here, either the way we're dealing with our people, a massive layoff where we're not providing significant support for people or some other message. People are much more likely to engage with you if you go to them in a way that opens them up where they see your heart and where you're less confrontational. And you can be very strong in those places. The other thing I think that happens at times is the more senior person often says, this person gets it. Maybe this is Joseph. (laughs) Maybe this is, you know, and if they see your heart, I think often the world opens up and that's an opportunity for Christians to go in and say this, but this is kind of what I'm about and this is what I see. And I'm wondering if we could talk about it. Now, I would tell you, there are also a lot of situations where that doesn't work. There's a whole history around whistleblowers on big issues, people that have lost jobs, people that haven't been treated fairly. I've had a couple of people that I've known who've been through that and sort of been their their coach through the process. And it can be very, very difficult. I can't say it it won't come at a cost. But I do think there's a way to represent our faith, our Lord in those places that can be very powerful and really help change things if we go to it with the right heart. Steve Presson is the CEO of Goodwill Industries. You can find out more about him in our show notes, or you can just search his name in any of your search engines you prefer. As always, we appreciate if you subscribe to the program. It helps us out in all kinds of ways. Steve, it's been a delight to chat with you a little bit to get to know you. Godspeed on Goodwill and on the many boards you serve. Greet my friend uh, Riken at uh, Wheaton next time we're at a board meeting. 
And uh, God bless you for, for all your good ministry. And thanks for who you are and all that you're doing. Appreciate you. Well, thank you for getting our message out there. I appreciate it very much. Glad to serve. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.